This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. And uh, I'm glad that you chose to, to be here tonight and spend this, this time together. First of all, what did you guys think of the, uh, the jazz piano when you came in, huh? <laughs> I think that really improved RTT. I think we should incorporate that into core and some other things, a little, little of that uh, flavor. So uh, that was a good, good, good way to start. I have the privilege of introducing our speaker tonight. Jer Swigert is a, a friend I've known for uh, 12 or more years, I don't know, a long time, and, and it's been a, a privilege to, to reconnect with him over the last year and, and, and to get to know him in his heart for Jesus and his heart for people and his heart for what God is doing in this world, and not just a heart for it, but a head, a mind, and a, a life that's living this. So I could say a lot of things about Jerry. He's a church planner. He, I met him when he was doing youth ministry. He gradu- graduated with uh, great awards from Fuller Seminary in California and went to an undergrad school, a Christian liberal arts school, not, not unlike Whitworth, had experienced a lot like yours, um, being a school like this. And uh, as we'll get to hear uh, here tonight, a uh, guy called him to, to this help step into a life of peacemaking and inviting people to God's heart for justice and making things right in the world and how we get to participate in that. So I'm delighted that we get to have him here. He's now the co-founding director of the Global Immersion Project, which we'll talk and hear a little bit more about later. It's a project that, that helps equip people to be everyday peacemakers by uh, immersing them in places of intense global conflict. So Israel-Palestine and San Diego-Tijuana are the two places they go. But Jer is also involved in all kinds of ways across the country and world, ways that helping equip Christians to think theologically about, think rightly about God, and then think rightly about how we then love our neighbors as a result of that. So uh, we're excited to have him here and excited for what God's going to speak to us as we have this time together. So would you welcome, help me to welcome up Jer Swigert. Thanks, Forrest. Uh, hey, good to be back in this room with many of you. I got to be here, I think, last spring, and it was rainy and cold, and uh, now I get to see this place in all of its beauty and understand why you go to the school. Uh, and and so, um, so really fun to be back on campus with you. Um, I, I, I want to spend a little bit of time framing, um, framing up the faith that I grew up into. I think it's important for us to, um, to understand what it was that um, that we were given and discipled into, and then also understand that we have a God who is always in the process of transforming us and making us such that we look and sound and think and act more like Jesus. And um, that, requires, uh, that requires painful transitions sometimes, and, and oftentimes it includes jarring experiences and uncommon friendships and, and so on and so forth. But, uh, but here's the thing. I, I realize that um, that I'm always in the process of formation and so are you. We have never arrived. Our, theolo- our theology is never fully established. And the moment that we think it is, we stop learning. And we become defensive of our shored up theology and things like this. And then we, we begin to actually defend it and, and place ourselves in an us-them type of space. And, and I just wonder, like, if we could embrace for a moment the fact that God is 100% committed to our ongoing formation, that it started somewhere, that we're moving in the direction of Christ-likeness, and that um, that is a wild, white-knuckled adventure um, that is both painful and exhilarating. And so um, I also want to frame this up tonight in, in light of 
the fact that um, this is my second time on campus, and I can, I can clearly mark my times here on campus connected to pain. Uh, the, the last time I was here was in the fresh aftermath of the Muslim ban uh, nonsense that was happening and is still happening to a degree. And, and now I'm here uh, in the wake of Las Vegas. And, uh, and, and it's, it's a jarring reality to me that I can now mark time in catastrophes because that's not the world that I grew up in. And, and so I would say that um, that the world seems to be more divided today than in my entire lifetime. I'm not sure if it's true or if I'm just more aware of it, um, but it seems more divided today than ever in my lifetime. And so the question that's driving tonight's conversation is, how does my faith intersect with real life right now? How do we show up fueled by our faith to join God in the work of restoration on the planet because God knows we need to show up and our faith is either going to be the thing that pulls us back and keeps us distant and safe from it, or it's going to be the thing that propels us forward into the radical center of it, uh, equipped with the tools to transform. And so uh, th- that's kind of where we're going to go tonight. And, um, but first, my, like, when I entered into my university years, um, I, I had a faith that went something like this. Um, God, uh, God was loving but also violent. And uh, God was hyper-fixated on my morality, on our faithfulness, which expressed itself in morality. And God was so disgusted with the fact that we couldn't live morally and righteous that God eventually put flesh on and came here to show us what morality looks like. And then on the cross, God exercised God's wrath. All of God's anger was poured out on the cross, and it worked. Thanks be to God, it saved us. And now God kind of stands distant and aloof, mostly disconnected from the realities of every day, unless I screw up, in which case God will come down and offer some kind of violent retribution against me personally or against like the corporate all of us in the form of natural disaster or war or something like that. But ultimately, God is just waiting for me to come and join him in heaven. Now, between today and that elusive one day when I go to heaven, my job is to follow a Jesus who looks like me and values the things that I value And I'm supposed to convince other people of the superiority of my loving and violent God, all the while maintaining my morality, being nice, turning a blind eye to that which makes me too uncomfortable, and then holding on for that one day when I get to go to heaven. All right? That was the faith that I was given. And it really worked for me. Uh, I, I, I was chatting with a, a class earlier today, and I, I, I've actually realized now that, like, that's a part of my story, and I, it, it, is, it is what it is. And the reason that it worked for me was because it meant that people who looked like me could maintain power, stay in control. I mean, it was a convenient theology to think of a God who is white and male and violent and looks like me and values the things that I value and, and this or that, you know? And so it was really convenient for me. It kept me in the seat of power and it worked until two weeks into my senior year uh, during my university career. And two weeks into my senior year, I watched airplanes crash into buildings. And, um, and then these faith leaders that I really admired 
endorsed revenge over reconciliation. And we all cheered. And I remember sitting in, um, I, I was in my apartment and I was watching like clip after clip of airplanes crashing into buildings again and again and again. And, and I remember asking myself two questions. Question number one is this, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus that endorses the violent demise of my constructed enemies? Is that consistent with the Jesus that I see in the Gospels? And then my second question is, is this Jesus worth my life? Is a Jesus who endorses the violent demise of my constructed enemies worth my life? And that really sent me on a journey. Uh, and it was, uh, it, it was a dissonant journey. It was uncomfortable. But what I recognized is that I needed a different vantage point on Jesus. Because a Jesus who would endorse violence was no longer a Jesus that worked. It was no longer a Jesus that I believed in. It was no longer a Jesus that was worth my life. And so I needed to get a better vantage point. And, and so I went to the scriptures and I kept exploring Jesus and the story of Jesus in the four gospels and looking at the cross and things like that. But I also began to develop uncommon friendships with people who are in the margins. And the, the further that I rebelled against the Jesus that invited me to be safe and followed Jesus into the margins where I would began to build real relationships, it was there that I actually started to find myself found and formed by God. Things started to change for me. I thought I started to get a more accurate view on, uh, on who Jesus is. And so here, let me just share with you some of what I learned, if I can click this. Click. Anybody? I'm going to do this. Okay, this is my friend Ben. Um, ben is a pastor, activist, social innovator, prophetic leader in, um, in our country, lives in uh, the streets of Oakland. And, um, and in my relationship with Ben, uh, he's, be, he's teaching me that Jesus did not look like me at all. Uh, that Jesus was a dark-skinned Palestinian Jew who lived on the underside of empire. That when God put flesh on, it was a dark hue. And when God entered into the created order, God did so into a space that was ruled by political crazy people. He entered into a space that was occupied and oppressed, not as the occupier or oppressor, but as the occupied and as the oppressed. This is, uh, this is my friend. Uh, this is my friend Milad. Milad is a Palestinian Christian. He's a Middle Eastern refugee, and he's actually teaching me how Jesus is, was a Middle Eastern refugee, understood what it meant to be fully dependent up, upon the benevolence of another. Ours is a Jesus who act, whose life and very survival was contingent upon the kindness and the generosity of people in a native land, a foreign place. This is my friend D. D is a, a pastor and activist, an everyday peacemaker in the streets of Minneapolis. She's teaching me that Jesus actually lived the practice of lament because he was proximate to the pain. He didn't lament because like, he read about stuff and was like, kind of far removed. He, he lamented because the pain of the people was his pain, because he was there. He was proximate. He felt the pain. It hurt him, and therefore he had a reason to lament. This is my friend Alejandra. Alejandra is a Mexican peacemaker, and she's one of my colleagues in the borderlands uh, between San Diego and Tijuana. 
she's teaching me that um, Jesus lived with borderless hospitality. Borderless. Extravagant generosity. That Jesus actually lived a liturgy of the shared table with all of the wrong people and it cost him everything. First reputation, then ultimately his life. See, what happened, like, as you keep drawing near, especially for someone like myself who's a dominant culture leader, to draw near into the margins and establish these relationships with people who, yes, they're my friends, but they're also my mentors. They are God's tool of reformation and renovation inside of me. You start to get a better vantage point of who Jesus is. Right? This is my friend Dominique. Dominique is a, a pastor, theologian, author, uh, lives in Chicago, um, He's like his whole life's work is connected to the conundrum of mass incarceration. And he's teaching me that Jesus actually understood what it felt like he he felt the impact, the flesh tearing impact of the whips of the empire. He understood what it felt like to be on the receiving end of a corrupt criminal justice system. That Jesus ultimately died of capital punishment by a lighter-skinned empire that was militarized and hated him. It blows up your your picture. You you draw near and you begin to build these relationships and all of a sudden you get a different, I think more accurate, more beautiful picture of who Jesus is. The reason I'm starting here is because who we understand Jesus to be ultimately shapes how we show up in the world. And if Jesus is simply an expression of a violent God, then we're going to be able to justify our violent behavior in this world, our use of violence, our innovative technology as it pertains to to violence and pain and war and whatever it is, fighting and, and this or that. But if our Jesus didn't wield crosses, if he wore a cross for the sake of others, then that informs how we show up in the, on the planet, creative, costly, sacrificial, collaborative, hyper-focused on the flourishing of others. So what is your perspective of Jesus? Again, I was given a Jesus. I was raised into a Jesus. That Jesus was really convenient to me, but all of a sudden, the the clothes of that Jesus got tight on me. It didn't work anymore. And I'm not suggesting that we can just kind of pick and choose our Jesus based on what season we find ourselves in, but if Jesus looks anything like other, if if our Jesus looks like anything other than a cross, I wonder if it's a legitimate Jesus. And so this is, um, I'm thinking about uh, my friend Daoud, and Daoud is a Palestinian Christian. He lives on a farm that's completely surrounded uh, by, by Israeli settlements. There's five settlements that surround his land. And, um, and Daoud is the embodiment of neighbor love and enemy love because his neighbors are his enemies. And he follows a Jesus who doesn't just stop at neighbor love. He follows a Jesus that went beyond neighbor love to enemy love. And so that is real for him. That looks like something every day in the way that he hosts his enemy neighbors, in the way that he interacts with them, in the way that he loves them. If anybody has a reason to be lethal, it's Daoud, yet instead of being lethal, he embodies the posture of the cross in creative, nonviolent, imaginative ways that are actually changing the perspective of his neighbors about him. Uh, he, He and I were in a conversation last time I was in the Middle East and we were talking about some of the conundrums of American Christianity and how, how American Christianity is perceived outside of the fishbowl of American Christianity. And, uh, and I'll never forget, he said, 
He said, Jer, I just believe that if American Christians followed the Jesus you admired, the whole world would be a different place. If American Christians followed the Jesus that we admired, not a cross-wielding Jesus, but a cross-wearing Jesus, the whole world would be a different place. But the bottom line is right now the world feels crazy. It's violent. It feels like it's blowing up. The world is not in a good place. And friends, I have to tell you, uh, the, the circles that I roll in, I get an analysis consistently of us from people who are not us. Let me, I want to introduce you to my friend Maya. Maya is um, one of my best friends. Uh, she is, she's the executive director of Lady Gaga's Born This Way Foundation. And... Um, Lady Gaga, uh, she wears meat. Um, <laughs> Lady Gaga, uh, her real name is Stephanie, and she is literally one of the most justice-minded, compassionate women I've ever met in my life. Um, part of the reason that Lady Gaga has created the Lady Gaga caricature is because in the first, in, in the initial years of her career, she wanted to be able to. Um, serve as a hostess in her mom's restaurant in Manhattan and have nobody recognize her. And it worked for three years. And um, Maya, uh, Maya was a part of my church in San Francisco. And, um, and we became very good friends. And, and so Maya, just to give you a point, Maya spends $250 million of Lady Gaga's money every year teaching people how to be kind. Now, to place that in, like, a larger conversation, right now the United Nations, the international community, is realizing that there's a void of kindness in our world. I think that's obvious. Um, guess who the United Nations is not calling to give them an analysis on how we can be more kind? The church. The United Nations is not calling the church to talk to them about a fruit of the Spirit. They're calling Maya. Maya gets to stand in front of the United Nations General Assembly and talk about how it is that they're teaching people how to be kind. Ten days after the election, I was invited to Washington, D.C. to give an analysis to a room filled with powerful white evangelical males. That's a crazy sentence. Um, and the question was, how is it that we've been able to garner political support and momentum, yet remain unliked by people? And so they, I, I, I loved the question, so they invited three of us to come into the room in D.C. and offer an analysis. Why is it that people don't seem to like us? And uh, the, the night before I, I gave the analysis, I went, out, um, I went out for drinks with Maya and some friends. And uh, they're like, Jerry, you're in D.C. Why are you in D.C.? And I'm like, well, I'm going to give an analysis to, uh, to a room filled with white evangelical males. And again, this is 10 days after the election, and these people are not white evangelical males. And, and so instantly they all lean back. But, but Maya leans forward. She goes, what are you going to say? And before I could answer, she says, because I want you to tell them this. We think that they're the most dangerous people on the planet. We think that theirs are the fingers on the triggers of our world's weapons. 
Tell them that we don't think they're a hope of the world. We don't think that they're irrelevant. We think that they're a liability and we are committed to working around them to actually do good in the world. That's an analysis, right? And so I said, well, let me gauge the temperature in the room tomorrow and if it feels like that's helpful feedback, I'll slip that in. Um, <laughs> believe it or not, uh, by the end of my analysis, I, the rapport in the room was there. And you know what I said? I said, um, you know, I, I think it's good that we're asking these questions. But I wonder if we're not asking these questions of the wrong people. Let me tell you about an interaction I had last night, and I told that story, and I said, Maya should be the one here offering us an analysis, not another white evangelical. So the reputation outside of the fishbowl of American Christianity is that we are dangerous, violent, revenge-infuriated people. Meanwhile, in the fishbowl, we think we're doing okay. We think we're making a difference in the world. We think, we, you know, like, and we're doing some, some stuff, and it's cool, and, and this or that. But outside of the fishbowl, people are looking in going, that's a dangerous group of people. Here's what Maya texted me um, later that night. She said, um, you use the cross as an excuse for coercion, manipulation, power grabbing, and violence. Your cross is not good news to the watching world. Are you with me? Like, that's an analysis, right? Like, that is, and it's hard. It's uncomfortable. It should make us uncomfortable, right? Um, and so I, I, I want to have a conversation um, about the cross, and this is going to lead us into this whole um, conversation about how we show up, how we show up in the world. Um, after that conversation with Maya, I had work to do. See, what happens when you're in a conversation like that, and it's really uncomfortable, um, we as Jesus people, we go to the scriptures, right? When dissonance and disequilibrium and discomfort and all of that stuff churns up, what we're actually supposed to do is go to the scriptures and go, like, how, what's true about this? How does this match up, you know? And, um, and so that, that's what I did. And I stumbled upon Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And this is like a, I think Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is like the absolute epicenter of the gospel, I, I just think it, it articulates so clearly what this whole story is about. Um, and Paul is saying, he's reflecting not just on the story of the cross, like the crucifixion scene, he's, he's reflecting on the impact of the cross. What did the cross do? Right? And, um, and so in, in verses 19 and 20, he talks about how all things were reconciled. Everything was restored through the blood of Jesus on the cross. And if that's true, if all things, if the point of the cross was all things restoration, all things restored, all things reconciled, if that's what was accomplished there, then the cross is about something so much more than my personal salvation and the restoration of my human soul. Because if it was just about my salvation and the restoration of my human soul, Paul would have penned something like this. The restoration of the human soul was accomplished through the blood of Jesus on the cross. But he doesn't say that. He says all things were restored. And if that's true, then the cross means that God's 
restorative wingspan is so much more expansive and his mending of the divides is so much more beautiful than any of us could have ever imagined. Paul is saying in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, that restoration is the mission of God. God waged a decisive peace in Jesus and it worked. And if God waged peace, then that makes God a peacemaker. Now, when I talk about peacemaking and peacemakers, people immediately want to throw me into some sort of progressive, like, hippie, rides unicorns, drives Volkswagen buses, you know, corner. God's a peacemaker. And, uh, and if God's a peacemaker, then either he had dreadlocks and I do too, or it's absolutely the most central, critical way that we can actually live our lives. Faithfulness, if God was a peacemaker and peacemaking is his mission, then it's ours too. And we get to actively join God in the ongoing restoration of all things. And that, uh, friends, I think is really, really super uh, good news. And so... Um, so when I talk about God as peacemaker, people are usually like, ah, so, so I, I have an analogy, and this is something that's been really helpful for us. Um, oftentimes when we're talking about peace or talking about restoration, um, uh, the, the ancient folk always used imagery of pottery, and they would, take this, um, they would take an imagery of a broken vessel that's been put back together, and that's shalom, Right? Um, I, I choose something uh, a bit more creative, and it's still pottery, but um, have you ever heard of the Japanese uh, uh, pottery form called kintsugi? If you're in a class that I was teaching in today, don't raise your hand. Um, kintsugi is this ancient Japanese form of, of pottery, and here's what happens. You take a bowl, a bowl that's been broken, and a kintsugi artist puts it back together. But it does, the, the artist doesn't put it back together such that you can't see the scars or the break anymore. It's not about like eliminating the, the signs of the break. Rather, a kintsugi artist will put the pieces back together and then he or she will begin to mend the divides in gold. Now, what two things happen here. With a kintsugi image or a kintsugi pot, um, this vessel is now stronger and more beautiful than before it was broken. That's a picture of restoration for us. It's not something that has been, been broken and is now put back together. It's something that has been broken and has been fully restored, but now it's stronger and more beautiful than before it was broken. And the scars are not a reminder of the break or the conflict or the injustice as much as they're a reminder of the healing, the forgiveness the restoration that has taken place. And so when I'm talking about God as peacemaker, I'm also, I'm talking about God as like the great Kintsugi artist. God is the one who has taken the shalom that we shattered and has put it back together on the cross and it's now stronger and more beautiful than before it was broken. Now, a question arises for us and it's this. Um, why did God have to become a peacemaker? I'm sure that was the question burning on all of your minds. If God, why did he, when did God become a peacemaker? Right? 
Let's go to the beginning of the story. If you, if you consider this, the, the Genesis narrative in Genesis chapter 1, you have God who is depicted later in the scriptures as triune. So there, there's the father component, the son component, the spirit component. They're three in one. And so actually God is community and unity. God is the very essence of peace, mutually submissive, fully dependent, fully encouraging, fully empowering of one another in the Godhead. And so the God before God created anything was peace. That's why the Hebrew folk refer to God as shalom, God whose name is peace. So before God created, God was peace, the very best expression of it. Now, what's the most loving thing that God whose name is peace can do? Expand creation and share God's self with it. So when God begins to create, God doesn't do it out of, a, out of a void or out of a need. God does it because God wanted to. God wanted to share shalom with more. And so God began to speak existence into being. And so God speaks and stuff starts to show up as the story goes in Genesis chapter 1. And then we get to the, the pinnacle of God's created work. It's humanity. And God does something very unique. Two things. Marks us with his fingerprint. We're created as image bearers of the creator. Unbelievable. And then God exhales God's breath into us. And it's the very exhale of God that animates our life and brings us alive. Right? And so in that moment when humanity wakes up, they recognize a couple of things. Number one, whoever it was that just exhaled in me will be the source of everything I will ever need and ever become ever. Number two, Humanity woke up into a story that was already in progress and that wasn't about them. And as the story unfolds in Genesis 1 and 2, we get this picture of the community that is God, the community that is humanity, and all of creation dancing to the rhythm of God's heartbeat. And it was shalom, peace, an unbroken vessel. It was every way that it was supposed to be for two chapters. And then we reached for the fruit of power, and when we did that, all of Shalom was shattered, like the pot cracked open. The relationship between me and God, the relationship between me and myself, the relationship between me and creation, the relationship between me and you, the relationship between us and them, all of the relationships were severed, were shattered. Everything was. And it was in that moment when we reached for the fruit of, the, of power, you see, we don't like stories that aren't about us. I want to be the author and the main character. I, I fabricate fantasies all the time in which I place my, um, my thought or my dream as better than God's. And every time I do that, I reach for the fruit of power. Shalom continues to shatter, right? And so, like, we have... We have God who watches all of this happen. And then um, that was the moment where God, whose name is peace, became the great peacemaker. When we shattered shalom, God became 100% committed to the restoration of all things. When we shattered shalom, it didn't make God angry. Rather, God, compelled by love, said, I am going to restore it all. That's when God became the great peacemaker. Now, what did it look like? Here's what we see happening in the garden. God is peacemaker. Walk with me through this, okay? We reach for the fruit of power. 
all of the relationships are shattered. What does God do next? Huh? Yeah, he sure does. I think even before that, what God doesn't do is end the story. See, a a, a wrathful, vengeful, militant, angry God, when we screw up, like the, the expectation would be, ah, I'm ending the story. I'm done. The great author doesn't put the pencil down. Grace enters the story in the garden. Grace doesn't wait until the cross. It enters in the garden. God doesn't end the story. That's the first action, if you will, that God did or didn't do. And then, yes, God enters into the radical center of it. Now, what, what I love, and this is the, there, there are these four practices of everyday peacemaking that, um, that I'm always talking about, and we'll talk about ad nauseum tonight. God sees the humanity and the dignity and his image in his people. God sees their pain. God sees the the brokenness. He sees their conflict. And what God sees doesn't cause him to end the story. Rather, it becomes the most important thing in the world to him. And then God enters into the radical center. And here's how. We see God entering in, not with like a Zeus-like lightning bolt and like a club. How does God enter into the, into the, the fray? The text says that he, was, he walked in the cool of the garden. We have this image of a God in pursuit, a God looking. And what does he do then? He asks a question. Where are you? So when God immerses into the radical center of our pain, God does so humbly. God does so with compassion. God does so with curiosity. Where are you? And then he has this interaction with, um, with humanity. And what, what's humanity doing at this point? Do you remember? Hiding and sewing fig leaves together. Right? Once upon a time, Genesis 1, 26, 27, I was naked, you were naked, we felt no shame. We actually knew that being this known by one another is as it's supposed to be. Now... Shalom is shattered, we're hiding from one another, and we're beginning to actually insulate ourselves from one another with layers of fig leaves. Now, fig leaves turn brown and die and fall off. So I'm going to have to keep on sewing stuff together the rest of my life to cover my own shame, right? God watches all of this, and so what does God do? God actually contends for them, covers their shame, does so with animal skins, which actually is the first time that blood is actually shed to cover the shame of humanity. There's some sort of picture in that, right? And then God says something about, um, there's a day coming where I'm going to restore all of shalom that was shattered. I promise that. It's going to happen. So we have a God who sees, immerses, contends, and promises restoration. This pattern shows up over and over and over again all throughout the scriptures. Think about while they're in chains in Egypt, right? We have a God who sees their humanity, sees their dignity, sees his image in them, sees their pain, sees their chains. And he comes up to Moses and he says, ah, I've seen, I've heard the cries. I see them. And now 
I'm about to come in. I'm about to immerse into the radical center of their pain. And, and Moses, I'm inviting you to join me in the work of liberation. Right? And so then God and Moses together immerse into the radical center of their, their pain and contending happens in all sorts of creative ways. Ultimately, they're freed from the chains of Egypt, but God recognizes that there are chains far more insidious than those of Egypt that have warped your soul. And there's a day coming when I'm going to restore all of it. Not just your freedom, your physical freedom. I'm going to restore all of it. I'm going to repair the warped soul. Then you have this this immigrant's journey. You have this wandering people who are trying to figure out what it means to live the God life. Keep in mind, they're coming out of 430 years of slavery in a polytheistic society. So they're wandering and God is teaching them how to live. And along the way, he sees them. He keeps on immersing into their story in all sorts of creative and very tangible ways. He keeps on contending for them to make sure that they flourish. And he keeps on reminding them that there's a day coming when all things will be restored. Then they find themselves in exile, right? So you have a people, God's people, who are in chains again. And the question they're asking is, how did we get here? What kind of God are you? What kind of people are we? Right? God, through the prophets, says, I see you. I'm about to immerse into the radical center of your story in a way unlike I ever have before. And when I'm there, I'm going to contend for you at the cost of my own life. And my contending will bring about the restoration that I promised when you shattered Shalom so many years before. And then we have 400 years of silence, and then God shows up to this impoverished teenage couple in, like, the under underside of the Roman Empire, a place called Nazareth. And he says to this couple, I see you. And now I have immersed in the embryonic form of a human baby. And I'm going to contend for you at the cost of my life. And it's going to bring about the restoration of all things. And then we have Jesus. God with flesh on in this place, demonstrating what it means that we have a God who sees us a God who has immersed and chills with all the wrong people, right? A God who contends all the way through his life and ultimately contends not through military overthrow or by wielding a sword or by wielding a cross, but through selfless sacrifice. And then the resurrection of Jesus affirms that the the restoration actually happened. We have a God who is a great kintsugi artist, a peacemaker who sees, immerses, contends all the way to restoration. And Paul says in Colossians 1, 19 and 20 that it worked. And it meant that people who weren't going to make it were going to make it now. Now that raises another really important question for us, I think. If God's peace waged in Jesus was so decisive, then why do we live in such a divided world? Something like 51 armed conflicts right now. The gap between the black community and the white community growing dangerously wide. Migrants hiding in the shadows of overcrowded apartments in our neighborhoods. Our streets filling with the blood of our kids and the tears of their mothers. Las Vegas. If God's peace was so decisive, then why is the world so messed up, right? 
Let me offer three thoughts on this. Number one, while the cross freed us from the power of sin, it did not free us from the presence of sin. We keep on reaching for the fruit of power. And every time we do that, we chip away at shalom. Like we keep it yet broken. Number two, I think we're confused about what this whole thing is all about. I think we're, we've been confused about what the mission of God is. When I, when I sit in a room with a hundred people, I could ask you, what is the mission of God? And I'll get a hundred different answers. I think the best way to answer the question on what is the mission of God is to go to Colossians 1, 18, 19, and 20 and understand what the cross did. In Colossians 1, 19 and 20, we discover that God's mission is restoration. And if that's true, then participating in that mission means that we too are agents of restoration. We're instruments of peace. We're peacemakers. And so um, I, I continue my odyssey a little bit, and I stumbled onto 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And, um, oh, I'll come back to him in a second. Such a great picture. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul again is reflecting on the implications of the cross. Now he's not just talking about what the cross did. He talk, he's talking about what the cross does. And he says in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, that in, in Jesus we have been reconciled. We are the reconciled beloved. And then we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We've been commissioned into the work of restoration. So if restoration is the mission of God, then peacemaking is the vocation of God's people. And if that's true, then peacemaking is not like an add-on to our faith. It's not the next Christian fad. It's actually central to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. What do I mean by that? To live like Jesus lived means that we see the humanity, dignity, and image of God in others. We see their pain, we see their plight, and we also see our own contributions to what's broken in them. Like Jesus, we immerse into the radical center of the pain with compassion and humility and curiosity. And we do so for a long time. I think that for us, immersion is, is the hardest practice because um, we're really good at noticing, diagnosing, solving, and walking away. We're very, very bad at seeing and then immersing and staying there for a long time without the answers. For crying out loud, God put on flesh and came in the neighborhood for 30 years before he did anything. If he has that kind of patience in immersion to get the lay of the land and whatever needed to happen in that space and time, then maybe it gives us permission to sit in the pain a little bit longer such that we can generate, uh, or we can, we can generate relationships and begin to recognize that the solutions to the pain in the world are oftentimes couched in the marginalized and the oppressed because they've been germinating there for generations. So what does it mean to actually immerse and get in the middle of it, or in, like the story of the Good Samaritan, get blood on our shoes? It requires that. So like Jesus, we see. Like Jesus, we immerse. Like Jesus, we contend. And when we contend, it is always costly. It's always creative. It's always collaborative. Always. It's always nonviolent. That's simply the way of Jesus. 
And then the great surprise is as we join God by seeing, immersing, and contending, restoration begins to spring to life all around us. It starts to happen. Um, here's, uh, here's a couple ideas of what I think this looks like. Um, this, I'm going to skip that last picture, but I can tell you a story about him later. Um, this is my friend Moira. Uh, Moira is a Palestinian woman, Palestinian Muslim, and uh, she lost her husband to, uh, to the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. Um, there's also a gentleman named Ben who's not pictured here. He lost his daughter to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. These two people, complete enemies on paper, found each other at a coffee shop and somehow brokered a conversation about pain, about violence, and began to recognize, wow, we both have experienced death in our families. That's the thing that actually unites you and I. So, so unlike most people, Around them, we actually share something so core in common. And so Moira, a Palestinian Muslim woman, and Ben, an Israeli Jewish grandpa figure, begin this relationship, and they literally adopt one another. She is like a father to him. He is, uh, uh, she, he is like a father to her. She is like a daughter to him. And together, hand in hand, they travel throughout Israel and the Palestinian territories talking about how revenge trumps reconciliation how reconciliation trumps revenge. My, brain, my mouth is moving faster than my head. How reconciliation trumps revenge every time. Enemies. Restoration looks like enemies becoming family and then co-creating a mutually beneficial just future. Uh, this is my friend Ben again. Um, ben and I, in the wake of the Eric Garner, I'm not sure if you remember, Eric Garner was the, was the large black man in New York City that was strangled to death on, uh, on film. After the non-indictment of, um, of that police officer, uh, Oakland went crazy. Lots of cities went crazy, rightly so. And, uh, and so there was a huge protest, and there, was, there were probably 3,000 people marching, and, um, and the, the potential of it getting violent was very high. And so Ben and I, uh, who have been brothers now for, uh, for probably a decade, uh, we, we knew that we needed to be there, yes, in, as witnesses and as solidarity, but also to hold a nonviolent space, right? Because um, the last thing that we need is more violence in our streets in the wake of violence. And, um, and so I remember we marched for about 11 miles that night, and, uh, and then all of a sudden the, the police just kind of casually established a line in the road and we couldn't go any further. And you, keep in, you have 3,000 very, very emotionally charged people who are not at all happy about the way that law enforcement up until that point and probably continuing are using their authority in the streets. Okay? It was a peaceful march that was planned that's now being blocked. It's getting crazy, right? So Ben and I we just start walking the line back and forth between the police and the protesters to hold about a four-foot buffer, literally holding people back who are wanting to come up and get right in the face of, of law enforcement. Law enforcement's terrified. They're charged. They're angry. Protesters are terrified. They're charged. They're angry. And just simply holding that space 
created a, enough de-escalation that two of the leaders from the protest actually drew near and approached the sergeant of the, of the Oakland Police Department and began a conversation. Now, those two protesters, along with Oakland PD, are thinking together about how they actually humanize one another in the streets of Oakland. Right? So restoration, like, not all things are restored in the streets of Oakland, but restoration is beginning to spring to life, right? Um, what's my next picture? Oh, these are my friends, Bree and Adam. They live in Des Moines, Iowa. Um, here's what restoration looks like. In their, they moved into a neighborhood and realized that there's no funding from the city moving into that particular part of the, of the city. There's, there's no community center. There are very few parks. And so they, they lived in a big home. So you want to know what they did? They saw the reality of the brokenness and the pain and the lack of resources and the fact that their neighbors didn't trust each other because their neighbors didn't have any opportunity to get to know each other. They sat for a long time with their neighbors trying to figure out, what do we do? Do we advocate for a community center? Or, or you know, do we, do we build a park? And someone, What do we do? And, and, um, and people kept saying, you know what would be great is if we just had a space that would be kind of like a front porch space in our neighborhood. So the, here's how they contended. They had some resources. So they start knocking down walls in their house. And they transformed their living space into this gigantic living room. They put in an industrial kitchen so that they can have a front porch in their neighborhood. Now it is the space where the community is convening to, to strategize how they're going to they're stave off gentrification. It's where the, the neighborhood convenes to, to talk about the fact that there are so many kids in their general area that are trapped in a system without families and that there's a way that the neighborhood needs to show up on behalf of foster kids. So like the, 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 the restoration that's being conspired because these two are everyday peacemakers, just they're not professional humanitarians. They've seen this and they follow Jesus and this is what's happening. Restoration is starting to spring to life in their neighborhood. I live in Bend, Oregon. And um, Bend is a city of 100,000 right now. It's the seventh fastest growing city in the country. And uh, when you have a condensation of white wealth uh, and explosive growth, it calls, it demands a migrant uh, workforce. So our migrant community has grown exponentially in the last five years because they're the framers, they're the roofers, they're the painters, the landscapers, and so on and so forth, right? And so uh, 100,000 people, right now our migrant community is 12,000 strong. 6,500 of them are undocumented, and 3,500 of them are dreamers, covered under DACA. So you can imagine how destabilized our local migrant community has become just even in the last few weeks. There's an expiration on 3,500 of my neighbors. And so um, for the last uh, year, we've been working to actually begin to build the relational infrastructure between the Latino community and the Anglo community. None of us know what we're doing. We just simply see that there is a severed relationship between the Anglo community and the Latino community in my city. And the, the deeper we immerse into the Latino community and the deeper we immerse into the Anglo community, the more we understand why and what happened, what would be helpful. Guess who the guides for our journey are? Our dreamers. 
Why? Because solutions to injustice germinate among the oppressed. That's why. Do you want to figure out what restoration looks like? Go to the margins. They know. So there are guides for the journey. What you, you see my friend Wendy. Wendy's a dreamer. She's 21 years old. She came to the country when she was seven. She actually remembered being in the trunk of the car. She was, she was told who her dad was and who her mom was as the coyotes brought them across the border. She, she remembers all of this. My daughter's nine, and I can't imagine what, what that would be like, right? And, um, and she's extremely assertive. She's resilient. She's courageous. She's a, she is a dreamer, not just covered by DACA, but a full-on dreamer. I mean, this is a social innovator. This is a contributor to the fabric of, of my city, right? She's never gone public that she's a dreamer until, until DACA was rescinded. And uh, a, a few weeks back, she, she called me uh, one Sunday morning, and she said, hey, there's a dozen of us dreamers that are going to get together at a park uh, in, in Bend, and, I, and I want, we're going to film our stories for the first time. And I wonder if you would be there just in, um, as a witness and in solidarity. Which already what that says is the relationship is beginning to be restored. There's trust growing. What an honor to be invited by a handful of dreamers to, to be witness to their stories, right? So I got to be a part of that and, and listen to their stories. As I drove away, I got a text from someone who said, hey, we need you to send a couple of people to Washington, D.C. from your district. Because we got to make some noise in D.C. we got to talk about what, what restoration looks like, what just systems, what humanizing policy looks like on behalf of friends like, like Wendy and the 3,500 of her brothers and sisters who are also dreamers in my neighborhood, right? So I get on the horn with her right away, and I'm like, hey, I want to send you to D.C. What do you think? She's like, well, I, I, I just went public for the first time on this video. Dave. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know. What do you think? And she's like, yeah, they've got everything else on me. Now it's time that they get my face, my name, and my story. And uh, the other guy that you see there, his name's Rick Russell. He's an evangelical pastor from a little tiny dinky urban, or excuse me, rural city called Madras. Madras is a third white, a third indigenous, a third Hispanic. His church is, is, is bicultural. Uh, he teaches in English. They have live translation into Spanish. It is one, literally one happy family. In rural America, this, his church is like a unicorn. They don't exist, you know? And so we got to send Rick and, and Wendy together to D.C. And this is, that relationship is just the embodiment of the restoration that's taking place in my city. Not because we're professional humanitarians, but because we, we're learning to see. And we're immersing. And as we're immersing, we're discovering what it means to contend. And as we're doing those things, God is beginning to usher in restoration. And it's an adventure to be a part of. And so, friends, we've been invited by God, commissioned by him into, into literally joining him in making the new world. We have a Jesus in Revelation 21.3 who didn't say, I made all things new or will make all things new. We have a, a resurrected Jesus who says, I am making all things new. How is Jesus making all things new? Through us. His physical presence on the planet right now and this new world that God is making is a world where brothers and sisters no longer kill brothers and sisters and it's a world where 
hunger and thirst no longer plague humanity. It's a world where human beings are no longer trapped in cages. It's a world where kids are no longer trapped in systems without families. The world that God is making is a world where senseless gun violence no longer robs lives, literally prematurely extinguishes lives in the streets of our neighborhoods. The world that God is making, yes, is a a world filled with restored and restoring souls, but it's a world where capitalism no longer trumps compassion. It's a world where consumerism no longer trumps generosity. And I think it's a world where my flourishing no longer trumps yours. This is the world that God's making. This is the adventure we've been saved into, and we can be a part of it if we want to. Keep in mind, Matthew 5, 9, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Bro said peacemakers, and it wasn't kooky and liberal. Blessed are the peacemakers. He's saying, blessed are the women and men who spend their lives literally on the flourishing of others. They will be called sons and daughters of God. Uh, there's more in, in my book that, um, that Forrest will chat with you about that in terms of the, pra- how do you do this? How do, you be, how do we become people who see, immerse, contend, and are part of restoration? But I want to close with this video and then... Recording was stopped at this point while a multimedia presentation was delivered. We will now rejoin the event in progress. Let's thank, let's thank Jer. Let's thank Jer for a second.